Chapter Seventeen of The Two Gun Man by Charles Alden Seltzer. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Penn. A break in the story. Mary Radford had found the day too beautiful to remain indoors, and so directly after dinner she had caught up her pony and was off for a ride through the cottonwood. She had been compelled to catch up the pony herself, for of late Ben had been neglectful of his duty. Until the last week or so he had always caught her pony and placed the saddle on it before leaving in the morning, assuring her that if she did not ride during his absence, the pony would not suffer through being saddled and bridled. But within the last week she thought she detected a change in Ben's manner. He seemed preoccupied and glum, falling suddenly into a taciturnity broken only by brief periods during which he condescended to reply to her questions with, it seemed, grudging monosyllables. Several times, too, she had caught him watching her with furtive glances, in which she imagined she detected a glint of speculation. But of this she was not quite sure, for when she bluntly questioned him concerning his moods, he had invariably given her an evasive reply fearing that there might have been a recurrence of the old trouble with the two-diamond manager, about which he had told her during her first days at the cabin, she ventured a question. He had grimly assured her that he anticipated no further trouble in that direction. So, unable to get a direct reply from him, she had decided that, perhaps, he would speak when the time came, and so she had ceased questioning. In spite of his negligence regarding the pony, she had not given up her rides, nor had she neglected to give a part of each morning to the story. The work of gradually developing her hero's character had been an absorbing task. Times when she lingered over the pages of the story, she found herself wondering whether she had sounded the depths of his nature. She knew, at least, that she had made him attractive, for as he moved among her pages, she, who should have been satiated with him because of being compelled to record his every word and movement, found his magnetic personality drawing her applause, found that he haunted her dreams, discovered one day that her waking moments were filled with thoughts of him. But of late she had begun to suspect that her interest in him was not all on account of the story. There were times when she sat long thinking of him, seeing him, watching the lights and shadows of expression come and go in his face, Somewhere between the real Ferguson and the man who was impersonating him in her story was an invisible line that she could not trace. There were times when she could not have told whether the character she admired belonged to the real or the unreal. She was thinking much of this today while she rode into the subdued light of the cottonwood. Was she, absorbed in the task of putting a real character in her story, to confess that her interest in him was not wholly the interest of the artist who sees the beauties and virtues of a model only long enough to paint them into the picture? The blushes came when she suddenly realized that her interest was not wholly professional, that she had lately lingered long over her model, at times when she had not been thinking of the story at all. Then, too, she had considered her friends in the East— what would they say if they knew of her friendship with the two-diamond stray man? The standards of Eastern civilization were not elastic enough to include the man whom she had come to know so well, who had strode as boldly into her life as he had strode into her story, 
with his steady, serene eyes, his picturesque rigging, and his two guns, their holsters tied so suggestively and forebodingly down. Would her friends be able to see the romance in him? Would they be able to estimate him according to the standards of the world in which he lived, in which he moved so gracefully? She was aware that, measured by Eastern standards, Ferguson fell far short of the average in those things that combined to produce the polished gentleman. Yet she was also aware that these things were mere accomplishments, a veneer acquired through constant practice, and that usually the person known as gentleman could not be distinguished by these things at all, that the real gentleman could be known only through the measure of his quiet and genuine consideration and unfailing Christian virtues. As she rode through the cottonwood into that deep solitude which brings with it a mighty reverence for nature and a solemn desire for communion with the soul, that solitude in which all affectation disappears, and man is face to face with his maker, she tried to think of Ferguson in an eastern drawing-room, attempting a sham courtesy, affecting mannerisms that more than once had brought her own soul into rebellion. But she could not get him into the imaginary picture. He did not belong there. It seemed that she was trying to force a living figure into a company of mechanical puppets. And so they were, puppets who answered to the pulling strings of precedent and established convention. But at the same time, she knew that this society which she affected to despise would refuse to accept him, that if by any chance he should be given a place in it, he would be an object of ridicule, or at the least passive contempt. The world did not want originality, would not welcome in its drawing-room, the free, unaffected child of nature. No, the world wanted pretense, imitation. It frowned upon truth and applauded the sycophant. She was not even certain that if she succeeded in making Ferguson a real living character, the world would be interested in him. But she had reached that state of mind in which she cared very little about the world's opinion. She, at least, was interested in him. Upon the same afternoon, for there is no rule for the mere incidents of life, Ferguson loped his pony through the shade of the cottonwood. He was going to visit the cabin in Bear Flat. Would she be home? Would she be glad to see him? He could not bring his mind to give him an affirmative answer to either of these questions. But of one thing he was certain. She had treated him differently from the other two diamond men who had attempted to win her friendship. Was he to think, then, that she cared very little whether he came to the cabin or not? He smiled over his pony's mane at the thought. He could not help but see that she enjoyed his visits. When he rode up to the cabin, he found it deserted. But with a smile he remounted Mustard and set out over the river trail through the cottonwood. He was sure that he would find her on the hill in the flat, and when he reached the edge of the cottonwood opposite the hill, he saw her. When she heard the clatter of his pony's hoofs, she turned and saw him, waving a hand at him. "'I reckoned on finding you here,' he said when he came close enough to be heard. She shyly made room for him beside her on the rock. But there was mischief in her eye. "'It seems impossible to hide from you,' she said with a pretense of annoyance. 
He laughed as he came around the edge of the rock and sat near her. "'Was you really trying to hide?' he questioned. "'Cause if you was,' he continued, "'you hadn't ought to have got up on this hill, "'where I could see you without even looking for you.' "'But of course you were not looking for me,' she observed quietly. He caught her gaze and held it steadily. "'I reckon I was looking for you,' he said. "'Why, why?' Suddenly fearful that something had happened to Ben. "'Is anything wrong?' He smiled. "'Nothing's wrong,' he returned. "'But I wanted to talk to you, and I expected to find you here.' There was a gentleness in his voice that she had not heard before and a quiet significance to his words that made her eyes droop away from his with slight confusion. She replied without looking at him. "'But I came here to write,' she said. He gravely considered her, drawing one foot up on the rock and clasping his hands about his knee. "'I thought a lot about that book,' he declared with a trace of embarrassment. "'Since you told me that you was going to put real men and women in it, I expect you made them do the things you wanted them to do, and made them say what you wanted them to say. That part is right and proper. There wouldn't be any sense of anyone writing a book unless they could put into it what they thought was right. But what's been bothering me is this. How can you tell whether the things you made them say is what they would have said if they had any chance to talk? And how can you tell what their feelings would be when you set them doing something? She laughed. That is a prerogative which the writer assumes without question, she returned. The author of a novel makes his characters think and act as the author himself imagines he would act in the same circumstances. He looked at her with amused eyes. That's just what I was trying to get at, he said. You put me into your book, and, and you made me do and say things out of your mind. But you don't know for sure whether I would have done and said things just like you've wrote them. Maybe if I would have had something to say, I wouldn't have done things your way at all. I'm sure you would, she returned positively. Well, now, he returned smiling. You're speaking as though you was pretty certain about it. You must have wrote a whole lot of the story. It is two-thirds finished, she returned with a trace of satisfaction in her voice, which did not escape him. And you got all your characters doing and thinking things that you think they ought to do? His eyes gleamed craftily. You got a man and a girl in it? Of course. And they're going to love one another? No other outcome is popular with novel readers, she returned. He rocked back and forth, his eyes languidly surveying the rim of hills in the distance. I expect that outcome is popular in real life, too, he observed. Nobody ever hears about it when it turns out some other way. I expect love is always a popular subject, she returned, smiling. His eyes were still languid his gaze still on the rim of the distant hills. "'You got any love talk in there? Between the man and the girl?' he questioned. "'Of course.' "'That's mighty interesting,' he returned. "'I expect they do a good bit of mushing.' "'They do not talk extravagantly,' 
she defended. Then I expect it must be pretty good, he returned. I don't like mushy love stories. And now he turned and looked fairly at her. Of course, he said slyly, I don't know whether it's necessary or not, but I've been thinking that to write a good love story, the writer ought to be in love. Whoever was writing would know more about how it feels to be in love. She admired the cleverness with which he had led her up to this point. But she was not to be trapped. She met his eyes fairly. I'm sure it's not necessary for the writer to be in love, she said quietly but positively. I flatter myself that my love scenes are rather real, and I have not found it necessary to love anyone. This reply crippled him instantly. Well, now, he said, eyeing her, she thought, a bit reproachfully, that comes pretty near stumping me. But, he added, a subtle expression coming again into his eyes, you say you've got only two-thirds finished. Maybe you'll be in love before you get it all done. And then maybe you'll find that you didn't get it right and have to do it all over again. That would sure be too bad, when you could have got in love and wrote it real in the first place. I don't think I shall fall in love, she said, laughing. He looked quickly at her, suddenly grave. I wouldn't want to think you meant that, he said. Why? she questioned in a low voice, her laughter subdued by his earnestness. Why? he said steadily, as though stating a perfectly plain fact. I thought right along that you liked me. Of course I ain't been fool enough to think that you love me. And now he reddened a little. But I don't deny that I've hoped that you would. Oh, dear, she laughed. And so you have planned it all out. And I was hoping that you would not prove so deep as that. You know she went on. You promised me a long while ago that you would not fall in love with me. I don't reckon that I said that, he returned. I told you I wasn't going to get fresh. I reckon I ain't fresh now. But I expect I couldn't help loving you. I've done that since the first day. She could not stop the blushes. They would come and so would that thrilling, breathless exultation. No man had ever talked to her like this. No man had ever made her feel quite as she felt at this moment. She turned a crimson face to him. But you haven't any right to love me, she declared, feeling sure she had been unable to make him understand that she meant to rebuke him. Evidently, he did not understand that she meant to do that for he unclasped his hand from his knee and came closer to her, standing at the edge of the rock, one hand resting upon it. Of course I didn't have any right, he said gravely, but I loved you just the same. There's been some things in my life that I couldn't help doing. Loving you is one. I expect that you'll think I'm pretty fresh, but I've been thinking a whole lot about you, and I got to tell you, you ain't like the women I've been used to. And I reckon I ain't just the kind of man you've been acquainted with all your life. You've been used to seeing men who was all slicked up and clever. 
I expect them kind of men appeal to any woman. I ain't claiming to be none of them clever kind, but I've been around quite a little, and I ain't never done anything that I'm ashamed of. I can't offer you a heap, but if you... She had looked up quickly, her cheeks burning. Please don't, she pleaded, rising and placing a hand on his arm, gripping it tightly. I have known for a long time, but I... I wanted to be sure. He could not suspect that she had only just now begun to realize that she was in danger of yielding to him, and that the knowledge frightened her. You wanted to be sure? he questioned, his face clouding. What is it you wanted to be sure of? Why, she returned, laughing to hide her embarrassment, I wanted to be sure that you loved me. Well, you can be sure now, he said. I believe I can, she laughed. And, she continued, finding it difficult to pretend seriousness, knowing what I do will make writing so much easier. His face clouded again. I don't see what your writing has got to do with it, he said. You don't? she demanded, her eyes widening with pretended surprise. Why, don't you see that I wanted to be sure of your love so that I might be able to portray a real love scene in my story? He did not reply instantly, but folded his arms over his chest and stood looking at her. In his expression was much reproach and not a little disappointment. The hopes that had filled his dreams had been ruined by her frivolous words. He saw her at this moment a woman who had trifled with him, who had led him cleverly on to a declaration of love that she might, in the end, sacrifice him to her art. But in this moment, when he might have been excused for exhibiting anger, for heaping upon her the bitter reproaches of an outraged confidence, he was supremely calm. The color fled from his face, leaving it slightly pale, and his eyes swam with a deep feeling that told of the struggle that he was making. I didn't think you'd do it, ma'am, he said finally, a little hoarsely. But I reckon you know your own business best. He smiled slightly. I don't think there's any use of you and me meeting again. I don't want to be going on, being a dummy man that you can watch. But I'm glad to have amused you some, and I have enjoyed myself talking to you. But I reckon you've done what you wanted to do, and so I'll be getting along. He smiled grimly, and, with an effort, turned and walked around the corner of the rock, intending to descend the hill and mount his pony. But as he passed around to the side of the rock, he heard her voice. "'Wait, please,' she said in a scarcely audible voice. He halted, looking gravely at her from the opposite side of the rock. "'You wanting to get something more for your story?' he asked. She turned and looked over her shoulder at him, her eyes luminous with a tell-tale expression, her face crimson. "'Why,' she said, smiling at him, "'do you really think that I could be so mean?' He was around the rock again and half a dozen steps and standing above her, his eyes alight, his lips parted slightly with surprise and eagerness. Do you mean that you're wanting to make sure that I loved you wasn't 
"'Wasn't all for the sake of the story?' he demanded rapidly. Her eyes drooped away from his. "'Didn't you tell me that a writer should be in love in order to be able to write of it?' she asked, her face averted. "'Yes.' He was trembling a little and leaning toward her. In this position he caught her low reply. "'I think my love story will be real,' she returned. "'I have learned,' but whatever she might have wanted to add was smothered when his arms closed tightly about her. A little later she drew a deep breath and looked up at him with moist, eloquent eyes. "'Perhaps I shall have to change the story a little,' she said. He drew her head to his shoulder, one hand caressing her hair. "'If you do,' he said, smiling. "'Don't have the hero thinking that the girl is making a fool of him.' He drew her close. "'That certainly was a mighty bad minute you give me,' he added. End of chapter 17